Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is brought to you by Netrix, which is a PAM company. And that's because Netrix has acquired our longtime sponsor, Remediant. So Remediant's co-founder, Tim Keeler, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to have a chat about how the PAM space is changing. And, you know, it actually is, mostly because we're not actually moving towards a consensus view on which PAM approach is a winner. There's going to be different approaches for different situations, which is why we can expect to see the emergence of more, you know, a greater number of PAM vendors that offer different products that do different things, all sort of contained within that PAMI umbrella. Uh, that interview is coming up after the news, though, with Adam Boileau, which starts now. And Adam, mates, the FBI pulled a fast one on the Hive ransomware group, and I am all here for it. Yeah, this is such great news. We've been talking for so long about you know how it was time to release some hounds and that ransomware was not tolerable and so on and so forth. And yes, the FBI and a bunch of other European law enforcement agencies uh, shelled their way into uh, Hive ransomware's environments, uh, stole all of their keys, stole some crypto, you know, helped out uh, some people with decryption keys for months. Yeah, they were in there. Uh, they were in there for like six months, and every time Hive would encrypt a new victim, FBI would use its access, or its partners would use its access, their access, to take the keys and give them to the victim. So they denied Hive something like up to one hundred and thirty million dollars in ransomware payments, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's such. This is such great news. I mean, and. Like it's just heartwarming to see you know other you know the sea ransomware crews getting getting hacked uh, and you know as someone who's you know been following the the history of you know FBI's approach to you know handling hackers and what you know going all the way back to the you know phone freaker days you know back when they were you know afraid that you know Mitnick was going to whistle up a missile from prison or whatever like it's such growth and development and the fact that they can go pull this kind of thing off is just like this is what we've been waiting to see happen and it's great yeah no it it, it really is um so they definitely pulled a fast one um <laughs> it also explains why when we've been critical of saying you know when it when a uh, government's going to take this more seriously and do stuff and whatever. Occasionally I'll have someone say, there's stuff happening, you know, and it's like, well, show me the receipts, man. Like, come on. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. but this is obviously why they couldn't because they just had such tasty, 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 deep access. And, you know, <laughs> I, I've been through the uh, Justice Department, you know, uh, statement on it. I, I had a read of the warrant affidavit and fr it's frustrating because we only get to see the warrant for them actually pulling the plug on Hive's servers. So it looks like, yeah, they were running their servers on boxes in LA um, and they had backup <laughs> boxes in the Netherlands and they've all been uh, nuked. But, you know, the, the, the fact that they were actually running this stuff in America is, um, is quite amazing. But this really does prove that this stuff can be done. And it is interesting, too, that it was a law enforcement agency that did this, not one of the, you know, sort of cyber mill or IC agencies. Although I'm pretty sure they may have advised here, you would think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you would imagine, but I mean, I'm sure the FBI also, I mean, let's face it, you know, hacking someone's PHP web panel may not have been super sophisticated. It's the whole operation around it and how you use it and how you maintain the access and don't burn it. Like, that's the hard part. And, you know, I'm sure they got advice, you know, on all of the aspects of the operation, not just necessarily the, you know, busting some stuff in the first place. But you just said it yourself. We're talking about, you know, operations that hinge on the security of some PHP, like, equivalent to cPanel. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, that, that, yeah. that's why it's been frustrating for me when people are like, oh, you know, how much good can offensive operations do against this lot? 
and quite a lot, as it turns out. Yes, exactly, right? And much like, you know, advanced persistent threats were, you know, we, we were always at pains in the old days to say, like, advanced is operationally advanced, not technically advanced. The same applies for offensive ops, right? Doing this in a way that you don't burn it, like, that's the hard part. And the fact that they've mastered that and can stay on target for six months and still help victims, you know, rather than having to sit around and watch it happening... Like that's, uh, yeah, I mean, hats off to them, right? It was interesting too to see the, I think it was the Deputy uh, Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, in the press conference that was hosted for these things. She was talking about how just because we didn't arrest anyone doesn't mean this wasn't a success, which which really echoes comments from Australia's Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, who said we need to move uh, beyond thinking that arrests are the only good outcome here. I actually sat through the press conference, so you don't have to. And uh, I'm pleased to introduce to the Risky Business listeners probably the most ridiculous mashup uh, I've ever prepared the most ridiculous audio mashup I've ever prepared. So this thing was announced by the Attorney General and, uh, you know, also in attendance was the uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, who seems to have been doing a lot around this and uh, also the head of the FBI, uh, Chris Ray. But here's my ridiculous uh, George Clinton atomic dog uh, hound remix of the press conference. So I listened to it so you don't have to and here is my ridiculous mashup. Funky dog. We are here to announce that last night, the Justice Department dismantled an international ransomware network responsible for extorting and attempting to extort hundreds of millions of dollars from victims in the United States and around the world. For the past several months, the FBI and our prosecutors have been inside the network of one of the world's most prolific ransomware variants, Hive. Simply put, using lawful means, we hacked the hackers. The FBI's strategy to combat ransomware leverages both our law enforcement and intelligence authorities to go after the whole cybercrime ecosystem. The actors, the finances, their communications, their malware, and their supporting infrastructure. Last July, FBI Tampa gained clandestine, persistent access to Hive's control panel. And since then, for the past seven months, we've been able to exploit that access to help victims while keeping Hive in the dark. We are engaged in what we call joint sequenced operations. The Attorney General described it well, uh, but that includes everything from going after their infrastructure, going after their crypto, going after the people who work with them, here, getting the keys and making those available, uh, but it also includes uh, hunting people down with our partners around the world. Uh, and sometimes those people may face uh, a U.S. criminal justice system, but sometimes they may face charges with all of our many partners who are increasingly lashed up with us. So there you go. And like, I I think you're in trouble. I think we could all say, Adam, that you're in trouble in life if even, you know, if your comments being set to George Clinton sound ridiculous and don't help you sound cool, like you've got to take a look in the mirror, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a a fair, fair sense. Because, you know, I'm going for a release the hounds vibe and that thing turned Mm. out so ridiculous. I'm like, I can't use that. And then I'm like, no, I have to because it is is absolutely... Hilarious. Funky dogs. Nasty dogs. Nasty so that one dogs. that one goes out to the nasty dogs at the FBI. Uh yeah, and, and you know we've field office, whoever it was, like nasty. 
nasty dogs. And, you know, uh, we have a lot of listeners at FBI. So a uh, big shout out to all of you. Uh, well done. But predictably, we've seen these comments. Uh, you know, uh, John Grieg has a write-up ab- about some of them uh, for his piece in the record. You know, some people saying, oh, well, without arrests, what good does this do? And I think really it misses the point, which is, you know, you can just do what the Chemical Brothers would advise, Adam. Do it again. Do it again. So, I mean, that's the thing. You just, it's, it, Sure, it's whack-a-mole, but you can make life pretty difficult for these people. And keep in mind, too, the information that the FBI and its partners were able to collect over a period of six months. We don't know how much they got, and neither do their affiliates. And, I mean, God, can you imagine how compromised they are right now? Yeah, yeah exactly. And one, some of the criticisms we've seen about the lack of arrests are, well, they'll just go make another crew, but... It's like still going to be a PHPC panel. Well, I mean, I, they're going to get wrecked again. But I mean, like from a reputation point of view and uh, like, can you, if you are an affiliate, are you going to risk working with someone who had all of their stuff hacked by the FBI for six months? Because, you know, ident- real identities are probably known, all of the payment mechanisms, like separating yourself and starting again in a way that, you know, isn't, you know, is survivable and lets other people trust you like that's really hard uh and you know it, they're going to be forever tarnished in the in the underground as you know the people you can't trust because they got wrecked and are they even them anymore is it an fbi sting is are they a, the are they even know? them bit is is really key to all of this right if you can assume yes. someone's digital identity you know a lot of these people they don't know themselves i know yes. each other irl right so there's no real way to know when someone's identity has been compromised yeah and if they did know each other irl then the fact that the IRL identities have now been compromised by the FBI is also a problem. And we've, you know, we've talked about the social cohesion and trust and the like the way those marketplaces have to work with, you know, forums managing escrow and, and so on and so forth to make it viable. Like that's the fabric that is attacked by these things beyond arrests, right? And that's a, you know, you can arrest five, ten people, but the minister's just gonna like sow fear in those communities for a longer time and on, and affect more people than if you're arrested. Well, and the nice thing about the extended period in which, you know, the FBI was inside this infrastructure is the FBI and its partners. You know, we've got to keep in mind, this wasn't just an FBI thing. Uh, but, you know, with authorities in there so long, like if you're Lockbit or a Lockbit affiliate at this point, you're kind of wondering, <laughs> you know, if the same you thing, are, if, right? you're, if you're operating in the same situation. Right? Yes. Yeah, exactly right. And yeah, this is just, it's, it's effective. And sure, arrests are nice. And I imagine we will see a string of arrests as these people go to, you know, Greece or Thailand or <laughs> wherever, Mexico on holiday, uh, you know, we'll see some arrests. But, you know, given how much, you know, kind of open source intel people, you know, Bellingham or whatever can do, you know, with data available about Russian citizens and whatever else, like if you're also in there as the feds and you've got access to other data, like it's... Yeah, like these people are going to be looking over their shoulder for a long ass time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's unequivocally good news. It will unequivocally yes. move the needle and they got to keep doing it. Now, earlier I mentioned that we only got to see the affidavit for the warrant for the uh, seizure of these servers. And, and, and based on comments that various officials have made, it seems that they only just figured out where those servers were actually physically located. I must say, they must have been pretty surprised that they could just like hop on a plane to LA and then physically unplug them or, <laughs> you know, get on a console and spin down that VM. 
uh, that would have been <laughs> that would have been quite funny. But they're like, oh, they're here, <laughs> you know. Um, but the warrants that I'd really like to see. So, so earlier I also mentioned that it's kind of surprising that this is law enforcement. Although in Australia too, that ransomware task force that we've spun up uh, involves the Australian Signals Directorate working with AFP, um, which makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of expertise on the ASD side, whereas you know AFP is a, a crime fighting agency equivalent to our FBI. So you know, I think I think we're all sort of moving towards a policy consensus on what these operations should look like. But we only have the affidavit for the warrant where they're like, we've established that this server is at this location, we'd like to go and turn it off. That affidavit refers to back to the warrants that they got halfway through last year that let them do this dis- disruption operation in the first place. And I would love to read them. Now, they would have been sealed for good reason, right? Because if you publish them, obviously, they're going to know that, uh, you know, the FBI is all up in their, all up in their stuff. But I- I'm really curious how the FBI was able to go to a court and say, we want to run a disruption operation. And, you know, for me, it's that part. First of all, it being foreign in nature, as it turns out in this case, it wasn't, but they didn't know that, right? But, you know, chances are the servers are going to be located outside the United States. Uh, Just a wild fact that they weren't in this case, (laughs) right? Um, But yeah, I, I, I guess I... You know, servers being based overseas is one thing, although there are rules that allow the, you know, FBI to conduct a search of a computer based on a US court issued warrant when they don't know the location of it, right? That was a whole legal reform that came about because of legal issues around decloaking the users of, you know, uh, Tor child exploitation sites and whatnot. So that part I understand. But the disruption operation part, like how does a US court sign off on a disruption operation? And I just, I just don't know. I'm not a legal expert, but I, that's the part that I wonder about. Yeah, I mean that, that is a really good question, and it will be interesting. You know, as the you know time progresses, we'll start to see some of that stuff. You know, in in the open world for us to look at. Um, but yeah, I'm super curious. Like you know, you always want to get, and we always want to get into the nitty gritty of you know, like show us the logs. I want to see some screenshots <laughs> of them shelling it. You know, I want to see the you know all the stuff that they've uh, you know stolen from the file system, and you know, we want to see the whole you know meat and potatoes of it, but. You know, we have to be patient, I suppose, and eventually, you know, someone will point us in the right direction or, you know, we'll, uh, you know, someone will come on the show and talk about it. That would be great. Like if you, uh, you know, we, <laughs> anyone from the feds who did all the shell and want to come talk about it, that'd be fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come and brag about it. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we'll totally let you. So, yeah, all round, I mean, just fantastic job. Well done. I think, yeah, there were multiple agencies. There were, um, you know, Germans involved. I mean, a lot of governments involved uh, in doing this and I think some cooperation from the private sector as well. I wouldn't be surprised if um, a couple of other agencies, US agencies, had some input here, but we'll never know. Um, necessarily, uh, whether that was the case, but who cares? It's got a bow on it, right? Like, well done. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, all of the funky, nasty dogs who did it, they know who they are. And, uh, yeah, hats off from Team Risky Biz. Some other news, and uh, this this story carries a pretty funny correction. So we put it in the news list because the headline is Royal Mail. I think the original headline was like, Royal Mail is, you know, resuming, uh, you know, full operations after the... Um, after the ransomware attack against it. This is by Alexander Martin over at The Record. That headline is now Royal Mail progressing to full operations following ransomware attack (laughs) and carries like a six-point font correction at the end. Talk us through this one. And we're not trying to be mean to Alexander. It happens to the best of us, but, you know, talk us through this one, Adam. (laughs) <laughs> so the correction says that uh, the previous version of the story described the Royal Mail as, quote, nearly back to full operations, 
But following publication, a Royal Mail spokesperson contacted the record to clarify that although the company is aiming to provide further updates in the coming days, it cannot state with certainty when the situation will be fully resolved. So, yeah. (laughs) Optimistic. Uh, on behalf of the record uh, that the Royal Mail has returned to service. Sadly, the optimism is unfounded and the Royal Mail is still working through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was actually surprised when I saw the the headline initially and I, I can't remember if it has changed. I mean, it's it's one of those things, right, where a headline changes and you feel like you're taking crazy pills because, you know, it's <laughs> it's subtle in this case. But, um, yeah, certainly the story seemed to give the impression that Royal Mail was like, yeah, back, back up, kicking ass. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. And then, yeah, no. <laughs> They're making progress, apparently, yes. uh, to, to doing that. So... Yeah. Now, look, well, a couple of other stories here that are that are pretty um, uh, interesting and, and, and somewhat grim. It's another one from Alexander, where he's got a story here about a British government minister, unnamed, apparently told a local government, which was the uh, Red Car and Cleveland Borough Council, to keep quiet about a really serious ransomware attack that, that hit it. Not only that, but the minister said, don't worry, we're going to allocate funds to help you through this and it'll all be fine, just keep very quiet. And their money never came. Yes, and I mean, keeping quiet about ransomware, like especially if you don't know what's going on early on, then obviously you know people do tend to not come out and say, like, hey, we've been wrecked. But when it's going on for a long time when it's affecting all sorts of people, you know, managing expectations and letting people, especially in the case of local government, where, like, transparency is important. Yeah, that's not, does not feel like the right way to deal with, uh, you know, with communicating to your constituents about what's going on. Um, and then, yeah, obviously the thing about not, not showing up with the money, pretty rude, uh, but, you know, I guess... I don't know, there's so much ransomware going on and, you know, we talked about the scale of the ransomware problem in the UK um, a couple of times and, but yeah, it's sad, especially when you see the impact that local government being ransomware has. Yeah, I mean, the councils have suffered, uh, you know, councils, schools, hospitals, these sorts of organisations seem to really get the worst of it, don't they? Yeah, well, they have such a diversity of requirements. I mean, there's so many things that councils do, and they all these days are, you know, backed by information systems, plus tiny budgets, plus, you know, all of these services are important, but you can't not collect the rubbish, you can't not pay people their, you know, social housing benefits or whatever it is. So everything has to be up all the time. No one's got any money, you know, change-averse, risk-averse. You know, it's a recipe for complicated badly maintained systems that are vulnerable to these types of attacks um and yeah i'm in a lot of sympathy for people who have to work in those environments and and deal with it and we've got another story here from matt burgess over at wired uh which is you know looking at, a, at an attack against london's hackney council it's a real deep dive case study kind of thing yeah this is a, you know a good example of the long tail of impact of something like ransomwareing a council I mean, and the the story talks through you know the challenges they had of you know dealing with things like you know in council provided housing someone can't use their kitchen because you know the piping's broken and they can't fix it because they can't manage the contractors and the systems and blah 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 and so like you know a council seems like a you know government you know nebulous government entity that you can take money from as a ransom. But this you know someone couldn't cook in their house for months because they got ransom. You know the council gets ransom. That's you know real human impact. And so these kinds of stories that do dig into that and put it all together, I think it's just really helpful. Yeah, um, there was also an interesting uh, insight in this about 
um, staffers from GCHQ the, and the NCSC at GCHQ, uh, you know, showing up at the council to help with remediation, you know, sleeping on beds in the office to try and get things back up and running in time. You know, these are real human stories and are important. Now, look, uh, if you're expecting, uh, uh, you know, snitches in Russia to, to help make this problem a little bit better, because let's be <laughs> honest, most of this issue uh, is, you know, emanates from Russia. Roskom, Roskom Nadzor, which is the, uh, you know, the Russian FCC, the Russian telecommunications uh, regulator, they've blocked the US State Department's rewards for justice. Um, <laughs> and they blocked it within like 24 hours of uh, the US government uh, saying that they would give $10 million rewards to people who could prove a link between sort of ransomware crews and the, and the Russian government, you know, just after the Hive takedown. And, you know, Hive, Hive were big players, right? Quite a prolific group. So, yeah, funnily enough, um, the Russian government uh, doesn't want people having access to the Rewards for Justice uh, website. They've also blocked the sites for the CIA and the FBI because they've been spreading <laughs> bad information, Adam, about the Russian military and state. I, I think, uh, you know, probably Russian people who have information for these for that rewards program also probably know how to bypass Russian controls on the internet. So hopefully won't inconvenience them too much. But yeah. It's, I mean, it's, the timing could funny. be a coincidence, but it's still it pretty funny, be. isn't it? It is funny. <laughs> I chuckled. <laughs> Now, uh, this is an interesting bit of news from Dan Gooden over at Ars, uh, where GitHub has put out a statement saying, oh, yeah, one of our code signing certificates got cloned. And you think, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not, not really good. what you want. Um, no. The good news here is that, well, first of all, they detected it, so they know. And the second bit of good news is their password-protected certs, which means by the time someone brute forces that password, unless it's password123, which would be absolutely hilarious, uh, by the time someone brute forces that password, um, you know, they should have revoked them. Yes, and that seems to be what's happening. Uh, so these were the certs for... Um, signing the like GitHub desktop applications specifically for uh, on the Mac platform, I think. Yeah, it was. It was um, Mac. Windows is unaffected. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, someone got hold of, a, of an access token for the Git repos, cloned out the repo, and there was key material, you know, private keys uh, in that repo, as you say, password protected, bought them enough time to go through and revoke it. Uh, they've also worked with Apple to kind of look for uh, stuff going into the, you know, Mac uh, app store that's been signed by the key and you know the thing well, you know the response seems good um but on the other hand having your code signing certs checked out you know cloned out of your git repos when your github <laughs> yeah yeah kind of not ideal it's extremely not great <laughs> now uh, a bit of news from eset which says that uh sandworm used five separate wipers in its attack on a ukrainian media organization which was called uh ukraine form i think um but yeah like five five wipers one of them previously unseen yeah um, and written in go as well it's nice they're working on uh, you know building building their stuff with newer paradigms that's nice <laughs> but yeah i mean other than that you know russians you know wiping things in ukraine I mean, that, that's unfortunately every day, I guess. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, we've had a, many, many discussions with uh, Tom about this in, in, in Seriously Risky Biz, but you do wonder why they even bother. Like, what does this get them? How does this help them achieve their military objectives? You know, you would be better off if you've got that sort of access, particularly into a media organisation, collect intel for God's sakes. You know, like, why are you just going to scorched earth nuke the place like what's the point it just uh, you know you would get a lot more from following those journalists emails than you would by like nuking the servers like i i just don't get it i, I just think yeah. russia's whole approach 
you know, they had it. They it seemed like they had a good plan for the first two weeks of the war, and then ever since then, they're just like, let's throw wipers everywhere, yay! You know, just seems yeah, dumb. I mean, you, you get the feeling that that's just like organizational politics. Like you have to be seen to be doing something, otherwise you're going to get sent to the front lines. It and reeks. So, it reeks of KPIs, doesn't it? It reeks yes, of it like I need does. to put something on a slide deck to show my boss that I'm a patriot and I'm you know giving it my all as part of the war yes. effort. You know. Yeah, that's 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 exactly the vibe that I got. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone needs to make their graphs go in the right direction. And that's, <laughs> exactly. You know, number of cyber bombs dropped. And this isn't just a Russian phenomenon. I mean, I remember like the Snowden stuff. You know, like how much of that was just people trying to make their program sound way more powerful and cool than they actually were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some things cross, you know, all sorts of... Cross-culture, uh, you know. yeah, yeah, Yes, yeah, cross-cultural exactly. boundaries, yeah. <laughs> uh, aspirationals yeah. will still overstate things somewhat, especially yes. if they're reporting up to a slightly less technical audience, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, we're doing exactly. Cyber War, sir, you know. Yeah. Excellent, <laughs> comrade. Okay. Now... Uh, <laughs> Of course, we spoke last week about the uh, TSA's no-fly list being stolen by the hacker formerly known as Tilly Cotman, who was going to give it to researchers. We had a bit of a chat about that. That list has now popped up on uh, forums, Adam. It's popped up in the open on forums, which is, uh, you know, probably not ideal. You know, you sort of wonder about the uh, the, the public good in exposing that uh, uh, on forums, even though the list is, uh, as one of these stories points out, a uh, civil liberties nightmare. Um, still just posting it on a forum, probably not a hot look. And not that I'm saying, you know, the hacker formerly known as Tilly Cotman did that, but uh, someone did and that's bad. Okay, I'll just say that. The interesting thing is, though, that the TSA is issuing, you know, directives or reminding people that they're supposed to be keeping that information secure. To which I say, TSA, why don't you take that list, turn it into an API, you know, that people can query instead of giving it to all of the airlines and expecting them to to keep it secure. Like, this is not the modern way of doing things, you know. Maybe, maybe, no. maybe instead of getting mad at the airlines for it leaking, you should... Take a good long look at yourselves, TSA. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, handing around text files and expecting people not to leave them lying around, you know, that's, yeah, as you say, like that's not how we do it anymore. That has never worked and it certainly doesn't work anymore. So, yeah. The fault lies not in the stars, but in ourselves, dear Brutus, dear TSA. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <sighs> anyway, what do we got here? <laughs> Headline of the week. Absolutely love this. Christian Vasquez over at Cyberscoop. I salute so you. The, so headline, the headline is Chinese influence operations may lack critical element. Influence. <laughs> <laughs> and of course they're talking yes. about the uh, and you know we've covered this in Risky Biz News and in Seriously Risky Biz and we've covered this I don't know I can't remember if we spoke about it on the show but um, this is all about Dragon Bridge one of Chinese, China's you know influence ops with a whole bunch of fake social media accounts uh, you know spat out a few political narratives um, but all of, all of the takedowns and stuff noted that this stuff got zero engagement you know and it was reminiscent of the Pentagon's info ops you know, that actually, so the Twitter files, right, which is just like crazy, silly stuff, like 99% of it, but there was one interesting thing that came out of it, which is it appears that Twitter knew that that info op we discussed a while back, which was like, by the looks of things, the US military, looks like Twitter actually knew. And the US mil was doing such a bad job, they had to like ask Twitter not to nuke those accounts. And, uh, <laughs> and they agreed. But again, that was one that didn't get any sort of engagement either. So I, I kind of wonder, Adam, at this point, whether or not the fear around info ops 
is justified. I, th- I, I, I personally don't think it is. I think the stuff around Gucci for two and the 2016 election in the United States was a bit of an outlier. I think that stuff may have moved the needle a bit, mostly because there was already a big controversy around Hillary Clinton's emails. And you add to that a leak from the DNC and the narrative starts getting confused. All of a sudden, the campaign's on the back foot. They can't really talk about their messages because they're too busy answering questions about emails. So I think that one, you know, certainly may have had an impact. But when you look at a lot of these other influence operations, they don't seem to have really achieved much. Yes, I'm always reminded of that movie uh, Wag the Dog where they manufacture a fake water and they cover up the president doing something bad in the, in the US and it, everyone wants influence ops to be kind of like that <laughs> but they, by and large, I guess, the research is showing not. Yeah. Um, and in, in this case, like Manute was had been looking into the Dragon Bridge and it was Manute part of Google now. Uh, Google can go look at you know the, some of the details for you know the accounts and the amount of views and uh, they said that, what was it like, 80% of their videos in their YouTube had less than 100 views. 95% of their posts on Blogger were receiving 10 or fewer views. So, like, as you say, really not gaining traction. And the um, I think it's an interesting... Like, this story referenced pretty early on uh, TikTok, which, you know, there's been a bunch of media coverage and, and, you know, consternation about that Chinese-owned platform being a potential, you know, influence op goldmine. And then you look at the actual influence ops and it's like, well, like maybe if they outsourced it to whoever does, you know, TikTok, like get the TikTok people to run your influence ops, you might have some success. But right now it feels like if you're going to let the, you know, PLA or whoever Dragon Bridge is do it, then maybe that's not their core expertise and you should bring in some real experts and, you know, get some real engagement. Well, I just feel like this is just noise. It's just noise, you know, whereas when I look at, people who are manipulating public discourse and pushing it in screwy directions, you know, I think more of like Fox News in the United (laughs) States, right? Which it's, you know, if you watch some of their commentary shows, they're completely bonkers, right? And I think, you know, sure, they've got a captive audience that they're sort of pandering to. Like, is that even moving the needle? I don't don't know. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, if you're worried about discourse being authentic, I don't know, man, it seems that there are other things that are doing more to distort it than social media influence ops which every time we see them sort of unveiled they just look pretty pathetic really yeah i mean i agree you know and we we want to see juicy good ones because it feels like it ought to be possible but you know and what was like pretending to be concerned texans uh, worried about investment in rare earth mining you know by australians in in texas like i mean come on really yeah Did that do anything no i doubt it you know and i i think Post-2016, we did see another phenomenon, which was the rise of the so-called disinformation expert. And there's just so many of them, Adam, they can't all be experts, (laughs) you know? But do you know what I mean? Like, people have made their whole identity, you know, centred their whole professional identity around disinformation. And you just think, well, you know, where, you know, is it really doing much or... You know, do you know what I mean? Like, it just feels yeah. like this. I mean, sure, it could get bad one day. I don't know, but it just feels like this as a as a policy issue is, is somewhat overhyped. I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess like the comparison between anti-vax, like so non-government messaging that's disinformation versus like just people being whack jobs versus yeah. like government like state directed misinformation seems by and large not super effective. But the anti-vaxxers and all of the yeah, the cookers, yeah. as we call them in Australia, because yes. they're you know they're all on on meth. Like that's that's the joke. <laughs> we call them cookers, but 
Yeah, you don't need the Chinese government or the Russian government to create cooker communities, right? Who have crazy <laughs> protests. Do it themselves. They'll do it themselves, you know? Yeah. And and I think there's too much of a temptation to attribute some of these political moves to external actors manipulating the masses through social media when idiots have always existed. And, yes. you know, so I mean, sovereign, want- citizens, sovereign citizens have been around a long time. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, we've even got them here now. Yeah, and was it like, never a tribute to, in this case, Machiavellian... You know, malice, what can be attributed to just the straight-up stupidity. Yeah, that's it. Apparently, workstations at a couple of government agencies, Adam, uh, got owned in the US, but it like it was not a big deal because it looks like what they did is scammed a couple of government workers into running remote access software, and then the scammers got on their... Uh, on their machine and like tried to like fraud them. <laughs> they weren't really interested <laughs> on on the network that they landed on. Uh, that got detected eventually. And um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of been written up as like federal agencies scammed, which is not really what happened. No, it's just the like common garden tech support refund scams um, that uh, you know typically are targeting old people. But in this case, some of them happen to be government employees. You know, and at that point. I mean, the article suggests that, oh, they could sell access to, you know, access brokers and, and onwards into, you know, whoever else. But you don't, you know, if you watch the, like, people who bait those scammers on YouTube, I don't know that they're really paying attention to the fact that they land in, the, you know, some American government agency when they're trying to send you fake refunds and scam you out of $400 worth of, you know, <laughs> gift cards. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Kevin Rose, uh, who was the founder of Dig who these days has an interest in Web3. Adam, you remember Web3? <laughs> I uh, wish I didn't. His squiggles, they're all gone. Oh, no. Someone broke into or got him to sign a transfer or I don't know exactly how he got these stuff done. But, yes, he has some NFTs of, like, multicolor squiggles. Man, I mean, and- I want people to go to the show notes and load this item so you can see the Chromie squiggle number 9639, which Rose bought for $26,000 in August 2022. And it looks like something an eight-year-old did in MS Paint. Yes, I mean, it really does. And if you'd like to, you could also, you know, right-click save as. If you'd like <laughs> to steal this NFT. Um, but yeah, so, you know, rich guy loses a bunch of dumb NFTs. Something like, what do they say? Like a couple of hundred thousand dollars? No, no, it's, like, it's been reported as anywhere between sort of half a million and $1.5 million. But it's like, have many of these actually changed hands lately? Or is that the on the books value? And this is this is what underpins a lot of the bad stuff in crypto. You look at what FTX would do, which it would, um, you know, mint a whole bunch of coins, put a very small amount of them on a public uh, uh, exchange, pump up the price by just exchanging and, and, and trading them and then keep the reserves of the rest of that coin, which was then, hey, look at the book value of all of these coins. It's worth a bunch of money. And then they could go out and get loans and whatnot. So, you know, I, I'm sort of comparing this to like what the cops call street value. You know, when they say they, they got a, they got a, they, they, they pulled a drugs worth a street value of half a billion dollars off the street. Uh, I don't know if, if people haven't seen the movie, The Guard, uh, you really need to. It's about a policeman in Ireland uh, played by Brendan Gleeson, uh, who had this to say at a DEA briefing about uh, half a billion dollars worth of drugs on its way. Street value. You lads are always announcing a seizure of drugs worth a street value of $10 million or $20 million or half a billion dollars. I do always wonder what street it is you're buying your cocaine on because it's not the same street as I'm buying my cocaine on. 
ter- <laughs> terrific movie, by the way, if you if you haven't seen it. But yeah, you know, the idea that someone would pay twenty six thousand dollars for the you know the the real value of these of these quote unquote assets is is probably not very high. Is what I'm getting at. Yes, exactly. And you know the whole the whole thing is just so dumb, so yeah. dumb. And I mean, I don't want you know I don't want to feel glad that someone got their stuff nicked because you know being a victim <laughs> of crime is not a thing. But that you should make fun of people over. But really, multicolored squiggles for like hundreds, tens of thousands. Just can I say? F- off on the show. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was a sign. It was a sign that we'd overdone it with stimulus, right? And that's that's why yes. interest rates are on the way up. Yeah. Is to is to yeah. is because you know we made a mistake. Uh, Adam, <laughs> we made a mistake. I blame central bankers. Uh, and speaking of uh, bad stuff in crypto chain analysis, I mean, talk about a company that gets mileage out of its out of its marketing materials. You know, they they put out yeah, a report. Really. Everybody's talking about it. Um, and Wyatt honed in on the fact that uh, you know most cryptocurrency, in you know criminal cryptocurrency, uh, runs through just like five exchanges, right? Which is not at all surprising. And you know, there's some real opportunities for disruption there. Yeah, there absolutely there absolutely is, and as a you know, it has become harder to get real money in and out of that ecosystem and funneling it through a small uh, number of crypto exchanges. And some of that's just natural selection, right? I mean, we've the crypto market going trash. We've seen a bunch of small players fall out and consolidate into big ones, and those big ones are more open to leverage from government or may even be being run by government. I mean, if there's three crypto (laughs) exchanges handing billions of dollars and that's the only way you can get your billions of dollars of crime proceeds out. Can't wait for the Department of Justice press conference on that one. Yes, exactly, right? And if if you're a crim... You know, you, you know, much like VPN firms, like can you trust a VPN firm? <laughs> no, Man, there is so your- much fraud in like the exchange space and everything. Like, yes. so much that hasn't come out yet. Like what I was just talking about with with the manipulation of book values of like made up coins. Like that is widespread. It is not just yes. if you think it was just FTX doing that. Like, boy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole the whole cryptocurrency ecosystem was just one big, you know, Ponzi ape scam, and you know, we're going to be writing books about it for years about how we all let's just, not you know, let's not let's just let it implode and then forget about the whole thing and move on, right? I would like that too. Yeah. Let's, in fact, let's do that. Let's let's not talk <laughs> about cryptocurrency anymore. Now, Adam, a big shout out to Akamai for some work it's done uh, and published on this week. It's a security research group uh, has reverse engineered a Microsoft patch, uh, right? So so some time ago, Microsoft patched a spoofing vulnerability in the Windows crypto API that it said was reported to it by the NSA and the NCSC. And yeah, Akamai grabbed the patch, reversed it and have figured out the bug and it looks pretty cool. Yeah, this is a pretty sweet bug. So as you say, it was August 2022, was patched, uh, announced in October's Patch Tuesday, I think. uh, And it was described as like a certificate validation bug, which, you know, that's not good, right? Certificate's got one job and that's to be valid. Uh, And so this research certainly felt very spook uh, when you, you know, when you see the guts of it. So this is a bug in Microsoft's crypto API, which is the plumbing that handles, you know, SSL on... Uh, on that platform and the guts of the bug is that when crypto api validates a certificate so your browser connects out gets a certificate in it has to validate it that validation process has some you know crypto in it uh, and that could take time so uh, crypto api caches the result of that cert validation 
So it only has to do the like actual RSA or elliptic curves or whatever once. Uh, it stores it in a cache, and then in future cases, it grabs the cert off the remote server, MD5 sums it. Yep's. <laughs> and then uses that MD5 sum as the cache key to look up in the certificate cache to see whether it needs to validate it or not. And the NSA and other crypto people, other spooky people, do know a little bit about MD5 collisions. Yes, they do. Uh, and so the patch, uh, ACMA reverse engineered it to figure out, uh, and the patch adds extra checking to this um, cert cache to make sure that the certificates that have the same MD5 actually are literally the same certificate. And then they worked up... Um, uh, a prefix like known prefix attack where you could modify a certificate uh, and present it such that the md5 collides with a certificate that is you know the legit one which has already been validated and now uh with that colliding certificate you can bypass cert validation which yeah and it's and it's pretty cool it's such a nsa and ncsc and just generally sigint bug because anything involving encryption like when you talk to people from those agencies about that stuff or people who've worked at those sort of agencies and you get them talking about these sort of bugs they sort of involuntarily bounce up and down in their chairs because it's just the history of those orgs you know very um you know encryption research heavy uh but yeah it's it's great work and it was really cool that akamai spent the time to actually pull this one apart and and figure it out because there were no details offered no, exactly right. And we were left with like, you know, a bug like that when you read the Microsoft advisory, you don't know how real it is. Uh, and so someone actually doing the work uh, and practically like, how do we use it? What SSL messages? How do I actually implement this? That's, and also how to detect it. Uh, Akamai also released some uh, like OS query queries you can use to find vulnerable versions um, of crypto of crypto API on your system, so you can check your fleet for applicability. Um, they also concluded that this did affect uh, Chrome, for example, um, on Windows, you know, from a particular version range. So it's actually like useful, actionable information that we don't get from a Microsoft advisory, right? Yeah. I mean, whether this impacted Chrome or not, given the you know, Chrome has often used its own crypto plumbing, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the super useful work in here. Thank you, Akamai. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Uh, meanwhile, Meta has patched a SMS 2FA bypass, which, you know, kind of like a, a bit of a, you know, forehead slapper. Yeah, so this bug relates to uh, like the in the process that you're like adding phone numbers to your Facebook or Instagram accounts, uh, like they send you a confirmation code. Uh, and so, yeah, it turned out that's uh, six digit numeric code. Uh, turns out there was an API endpoint that just straight up wasn't rate limited. Uh, so you could sit there, you know, and submit guesses for that six digit code until you succeeded, which, you know, if you're going to do small key space you know, a pin number style auth, like pretty much that's the one thing you have to get right is rate limiting or at least counting the number of failed attempts. Well, I was going to say else. like rate limiting, I, I mean, okay, but a failed attempt counter, like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's a, it's, it's you know, the thing that you have to get right in this process. And they did not. And then they paid someone $27,000 yeah, nice. for telling them that. So good job, uh, Bug Bounty Kid. And finally, Adam, we're going to just talk quickly about this story from Joe Cox in Vice. Apparently, 4chaners have been abusing an AI voice generation service, right, to to generate recordings in the in the sounds of, like, celebrities' voices and whatnot to have them saying absolutely horrible things. No surprises there. The company yeah, has who, now moved. Who could have foreseen? Who yes, could have? who could have seen this <laughs> happening? So the company has now tightened things up so that you need to actually enter valid credit card details and whatnot uh, to be able to do this sort of thing. But, like, that's all well and good, but this is going to be a problem in the future. And 
and you know the inevitably there's going to be recordings of you and me saying all sorts of things going out there because let's be honest, the training data is out there. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, you know, the, this particular service needed something like a minute's worth of audio to then do voice cloning. So like, it's not a complicated process. And it's a thing you could do, you know, as a hobbyist, like one of my guys uh, in the, around the office faked us with an AI system, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah. But I mean, that took a bunch of fiddling and understanding how to drive the various tool chains and so on. Whereas if it's just a service of upload a, you know, RiskyBiz.mp3, type in the script uh, that you'd like us to read and off you go, then yeah. I mean, people like us who put our voice on the internet uh, on the reg. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, on the plus or, side, we get, we get deniability. Uh, if ever we're caught true. saying anything embarrassing, it was obviously That's, deep faked, Adam. Hackers did it, yeah. Hackers yeah, did yeah, it. Yeah. It was hackers. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. Maybe we need to plumb up Chat GPT to this thing. Mm. You know, we could just feed it articles every week. Just so, dump in a list of articles and say, discuss these in the style of risky business. Yeah, and then then you could go camping. Yeah. Um, that is it, Adam, uh, for the week's news. Uh, big thanks to you for joining us. I believe you're going on a road trip over the next couple of days. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I certainly am. Enjoy that. And uh, we'll chat to you again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Tim Keeler, the co-founder of our longtime sponsor, Remediant. And Remediant uh, has been acquired by Netrix. They announced that uh, towards the end of last year. And uh, Netrix, they offer a bunch of products, you know, like one that helps you nuke privileged accounts from your Active Directory. And, you know, they do some stuff around just-in-time admin as well. So, yeah, definitely they think in a similar way to the Remediant team. So I spoke to Remediant's co-founder, Tim Keeler, about how the PAM market is changing and why one single approach to PAM and directory auditing won't cut it. We're going to see some consolidation here and the emergence of PAM uh, vendors that, you know, offer quite a few different products. Here's Tim. You know, when we take a look at PAM and how all these attacks are happening, right, it's, PAM's always in the forefront because it's always credentials that are getting compromised. And, and so as we've had that evolution, and that includes us for that matter, um, there's a lot of different point solutions, whether it's ones that are addressing the cloud, ones that are addressing, you know, specific on-prem environments. And I think customers are just tired of having, you know, a hundred different point solutions for all these different problems. And so the, the customers are really saying like, Hey, we really need a comprehensive platform that is, you know, holistically looking across the board. So we shouldn't be talking about, Oh, what's, what's your cloud security look like versus your on-prem security versus, you know, your BYOD security, these things are all together and they're all facing the same challenges. And so yeah. people are realizing we need a better platform to be able to manage all of this stuff together. Yeah. I mean, I took a look at the Netrex stuff, right? And it looks like it does something similar to you, but it actually is something that you install on your Active Directory controllers, right? So, but it's that same like just-in-time admin approach, but not an appliance, which is kind of how Remediant deploys. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, when we take a look at the different technologies, there's a lot of complementary approaches by what we're doing on this whole zero standing privilege, addressing this problem of, of admin sprawl, which every company of all sizes are really dealing with. Really, we're really coming in and helping companies understand what is their attack vector, what is their risk profile, and doing this just at really fast scale and being able to, one, identify the problem and then to address that. And so now we can actually take that technology alongside all these other, uh, you know, PAM tools and some of the traditional approaches 
and look at this together in a more holistic, uh, you know, problem set. So while we're focused on that area, we can now start integrating these other bits of, oh, here's what account management looks like. Here's what, you know, kind of your traditional vaulting use cases, which you do need for compliance. And we've always said like, yes, there's, we recognize there are, you know, problems out there that we need to solve using those technology approaches. We're just looking at a different problem. And so now we can actually start unifying all of this stuff together. One thing I've noticed uh, is a bit of a trend lately is there seems to actually be some innovation. Let's use the the I word um, around just general directory security, auditing, attack path management, stuff like that, right? And there seems to be a bit of a crossover between some of the newer PAM style companies like you. There seems to be a bit of a crossover between that and the sort of, you know, directory analysis tools. And, you know, there I'm thinking about that one that just got acquired by Proofpoint, uh, Israeli company, I can't remember the name. And then there's like Bloodhound um, and, and, and companies like that. And it just feels like people are now, instead of just trying to lock stuff in password vaults, they're taking a more analytical approach. I mean, yours, I wouldn't say is an attack path management tool, um, but it's like an attack you know, it's like a, a attack surface minimization tool, but, you know, it sort of feels like PAM and just general active directory security tooling has, you know, there's a lot of potential for, for those areas to kind of come together. Do you think that's going to happen or do you think the PAM and access vendors are going to stay PAM and access vendors and the analysis companies are going to stay the analysis companies? No, I definitely think they're all coming together. I mean, you know, and so what we, you know, if you're an IAM expert and you're really focused on Active Directory, that that is the world of of your problem, right? That's where you're kind of looking at this. But when you're an attacker, you don't really care about the Active Directory problem, right? You're going to exploit that and you're going to leverage that. And so in order to build a successful cybersecurity program, you really have to look across the entire board and understand, okay, what is my attack surface? Whether I have AD or not, or maybe I'm moving to Azure AD, or maybe I've abandoned all of that altogether. Right. And so it's just understanding, okay, how is an attacker going to exploit your network? What are they going to do when they have some level of credentials and, you know, and, and how can they actually get to their objective? Right. So you really want to understand that. And that's really the core problem that, you know, we're trying to solve as, you know, as an industry. Right. So these things all have to play nice to get uh, nice together with each other. Otherwise you end up having okay, you know, maybe 20 different views into all different sets of problem, you don't really know what you're trying to solve then. I think there was a, there was kind of an expectation that a lot of these issues were going to go away as we modernized infrastructure, but directory challenges, and I've said this on the show before, like the challenges involved with directories and permissions and complexity, you know, they're not going anywhere. Like it doesn't matter if you're running Azure AD or some other, you know, more modern directory the fact that you've got all of these complicated roles managing, you know, various amounts of privileges, the tech doesn't really matter. It's the actual standing concept that makes it complicated and hard, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when I talk to companies that are, you know, both doing Azure AD from the directory side, but then they have this huge presence of AWS and they fully recognize like, oh, all of my DevOps engineers, they have their AWS you know, um, key and secret storing stored in a plain text file in their home directory. So, and they have full admin rights in that environment. So if all it really takes is, you know, take lateral movement out of the equation, if that one system gets compromised and you don't even need admin level permissions, you can then grab those keys and then you have full, you know, access to the AWS environment. Right. But that's, but that's really an analogy for everything else. 
so uh, Netrix, like, give us a bit of background on Netrix, which is your new, you know, parent company. From a quick search, it looks like what they do is, you know, just-in-time uh, privileged access provisioning, much like Remediant's product, but they install directly onto AD controllers and stuff. Is that their flagship product, or they got other stuff? Like, what's their what's their main money maker? Yeah, they've they've got a number of products, and I think they're most well known for their stealth audit platform. And so this kind of comes from Netrix's acquisition, I think it was about two years ago, of Stealth Bits. And so Stealth Auto was one of their big technologies to help you kind of get visibility across the data access governance space. And so they kind of started growing and evolving to have some, you know, PAM capabilities and then also have uh, Stealth Defend, which is their Active Directory analysis product. And so they've had a number of different point solutions and they have actually um, kind of a much bigger um, portfolio through a number of other acquisitions that they've had. Well, I noticed. I noticed too that Netrix is actually owned by uh, what is it? TA. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, TA Associates, which is which is a private equity firm, right? So so this feels like a PE. You know, this really feels like a PE play, which is to go like like Pokemon, go collect them all, and then um, you know do, do do something there. I mean, that seems to be what's what they're doing, right? Yeah, I think there's a part of that, and you know, and they're kind of. Um, you know, they're doing things a little different than your traditional PE company where, you know, everyone thinks PE, they're like, okay, they're all about squeezing every company, you know, for uh, as as all the pennies out of them to try to get as much profitability. So they're actually kind of having a different strategy with, uh, you know, the networks is like, okay, let's look strategically at the market. Let's understand the direction that companies are going in and identify, you know, these kind of strategic type of companies that are just going to help kind of build this much bigger, you know, kind of portfolio of technologies that can start solving these problems for for companies. So it, it really is kind of a strategic view as opposed to, okay, let's kind of maximize, you know, profits out of all these different companies and mash them together. I guess the reason I mentioned this is because uh, the, the reason I mentioned this sort of ownership of Netrix and now you is because it sounds like this is part of a process of trying to build a fairly large and comprehensive PE backed PAM play. I mean, is, you know, where, where are they in that sort of, is, is this the middle bit or the beginning or, uh, or is this like uh, with this acquisition, are things getting more towards the complete end or what's, what's the go there? Yeah. The um, I, I don't think, and, and this is just purely me um, kind of speculating on this. I don't have the full insights of, you know, of the, yeah, I know, the I know I'm strategy. sort of asking you some dangerous <laughs> questions here, Tim, you know, what's the plan of the company yeah, that owns the company that owns you? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say that we are kind of a, kind of a, a core central bet to evolving and expanding. I would, I, my intuition tells me that this is on the early side, because when you see kind of the evolution and, you know, kind of the direction of everyone moving to the cloud and the complexities around there, which I fully believe are going to be the the next giant wave of cyber attacks. Um, you know, we got a long, you know, long road and a lot of work ahead of us, but I, I would expect there to be kind of a lot more interesting things of, um, you know, us and what we're doing and um, maybe other, you know, future acquisitions they might do. All right. Well, Tim Keeler, thank you so much for joining us on the show uh, to talk us through, you know, the acquisition of Remedian, a long-term uh, risky business sponsor. Uh, great news for you and your team. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best with it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Great to be here. That was Tim Keeler from Remediant there. And Remediant, of course, is now a Netrix company and you can find them at netrix.com. I'm going to spell that for you because uh, you won't figure it out otherwise. It's N-E-T-W-R-I-X.com. N-E-T-W-R-I-X.com. And that is it for today's podcast. I'll be back tomorrow in the Risky Business News feed with an episode of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you.